Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 410, The Sound of Her Voice. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we pick up the signal Star Trek is sending out, listening closely, sometimes talking back, and then sharing what we've learned with you. This week, the sound of her voice, the one where the crew of the Defiant go on a daring rescue mission, guided to their destination by the sound of someone's voice. I'll be back with trivia in just a moment, but as soon as Norman tells all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, everyone, to get you through this week's trivia, please listen to the sound of John's voice. And here is Mr. Champion with the trivia. Why, thank you. Trivia for the sound of her voice. We have a story by Pam Pietroforte, and it's been a little while since we mentioned Pam. You might remember that she was an intern on DS9, and she pitched the story that became Statistical Probabilities. This is her second and final TV writing credit. We have a teleplay by Ronald D. Moore, and it is always an important point of discussion to note that those single credits never tell the whole story. So the very first concept was a Cisco-centric story about him talking to a voice from the distant past, the 1940s, and falling in love. For a number of reasons, it wasn't going to work. Ron and Ira both liked the twist and felt like ultimately this was going to be a way to explore the characters in our lives, which leads us to director Vinrich Colby. Now, he loved working on this one since he felt like it was a, a time to really let the actors shine. It was all about them, creating the intimate scenes and just letting them do the work. Vinrich, you might recall, has been in the director's chair often, since season two of Next Gen, 
And the most recent of his episodes that we discussed was Favor the Bold from earlier in Season 6 of DS9. We have the Olympia, and this is a cool one because you know that I love my ship history. The namesake for this ship is the USS Olympia, a cruiser built by the U.S. Navy in 1895. She was in service in both the Spanish-American War and World War I and was classified as a museum in 1957 and restored to her 19th century configuration. Now today, she sits in the Independent Seaport Museum in Philadelphia where she needs some TLC and dry dock. So if you're feeling generous, look her up. We also have the shuttle Chaffee, and this is the only time that we've seen this shuttle from the Defiant. It was named, of course, for astronaut Lieutenant Commander Roger Chaffee, who was killed in the accident on board Apollo 1's test, along with Gus Grissom and Ed White. Let's talk about our guest stars. We welcome back Penny Johnson as Cassidy Yates, and Captain Lisa Cusack is played by Deborah Wilson. Now, Deborah is best known as a comedic actress. You can find her on Reno 911 in Scary Movie 4. And at the time this episode was made, she was definitely best known as a cast member on Mad TV. Not surprisingly, she's also done just a tremendous amount of voice acting work in her long career. Everything from superheroes to children's stories to anime and, well, everything in between. A fun note about casting this episode of DS9, though. The producers and director didn't want any decision to be made based on the actor's physical appearance. So they had a number of women audition on audio tape only and just played back the tapes to find the voice that in their mind would fit the character. Deborah was on set, though, during production, but hidden. They wanted to keep the actors focused and not reacting to someone who was there. So the crew set up speakers around the set, not coming from any one particular direction, and Deborah could be behind a wall or in a totally different area, sight unseen, reading her lines with the conversation happening in real time. I have a feeling there's going to be some talking in this episode. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Prologue. Odo is making Quark's life in the bar difficult by nitpicking every possible safety violation until he's distracted by Major Kira, which gives Quark an idea how to keep the constable off his back. Love is a distraction. Meanwhile, on the Defiant, they're wrapping up a long convoy mission. Dr. Bashir is bogged down in paperwork, Captain Sisko is exhausted, but at least he's got Cassidy Yates there who seems to feel a bit left out of the captain's attention. Then a distress call comes through from the Ritharian sector, a distant voice, a Starfleet officer whose ship and crew were all destroyed. She now sits, waiting, on a Class L planet for rescue to arrive. And with that, Captain Sisko orders the Defiant to set course for the Ritharian sector. Act 1. On DS9, Quark is now fully hatching a mission of his own. To get Odo to leave him alone, Quark asks if the constable has picked out a one-month anniversary gift for Major Kira. 
Jake sees what Quark is doing and asks politely if he can be an observer. He's writing a crime novel and needs some inspiration. Hesitantly, Quark agrees, but only if none of the details end up in the book or in front of Captain Sisko. Back on the Defiant, Chief O'Brien has been working nonstop trying to establish two-way communication with that plaintive, disembodied voice. Cassidy Yates happens in and asks the chief if he thinks her presence there is uncomfortable for everyone else. Before they can explore the awkwardness of the conversation, though, the voice on the other end of the comm line calls out. She can hear them. Act 2. Meet Captain Lisa Cusack, commanding officer of the Olympia. They were near the Beta Quadrant on a mission that started eight years ago and then stopped to investigate some strange energy readings on the fourth planet in the Rutherian sector when everything went pear-shaped. The Matreon radiation and the energy barrier caused the Olympia to crash, and she was the only survivor. Now she's rationing Triox compound to keep herself alive in time for a rescue and unable to sleep. All she wants from the Defiant crew is some friendly voices to keep her occupied until they can arrive. First up is Captain Sisko, who recounts the recent history of the Dominion War. But Lisa wants to shift to something more personal, like Sisko's love life, and why he's dismissive when he talks about Cassidy Yates being on board. Next on Lisa's chat line is Dr. Bashir. He's not the best conversationalist. He's distracted and bored, and suddenly Lisa cries out. There's something coming toward her. Then a terrified scream. Act 3. Bashir's surprise turns into concern. The voice on the comm now turns sinister, snarling that it has eaten Lisa. Ha-ha. Joke's on you, Doctor. Lisa knows he was getting bored and wanted to make sure he was paying attention. She is a patient, though, and she could use a little better bedside manner. To further get Odo out of the way... Quark offers up some time in the holosuite for him and Major Kira, just in time for a little side deal on Saturday night, selling some contraband crystals to a Nausicaan. Odo picks out a program, Paris, 1928, and tells Quark that he'll be back on Sunday rather than Saturday since he'd rather commemorate his and Kira's first kiss than their first disastrous date. That throws Quark's little deal into a tailspin. And since he's dealing with a criminal buyer, he can't even reach the guy to reschedule. Fearing that Odo will catch them all, Quark starts to panic. Back on the Defiant, it's Chief O'Brien's turn. He's in his bunk, talking to Lisa, and he's really opening up about his struggle through this war as opposed to the other difficult situations he's been in. He talks about seeing people around him and thinking it could be for the last time. Lisa is sympathetic, acting like a friend, and a counselor in this case, something they both agree shouldn't be on a starship. After O'Brien, it's time for Bashir to converse with Lisa again. He's much more present this time, but he can tell that Lisa's condition is getting worse. What's more, she's running dangerously low on Triox, only two days' worth, and the Defiant is still three days out. Act 4. With time running out, Cisco orders that they increase speed to warp 9.5, which will mean using reserve power from the phasers to maintain structural field integrity. Cassidy pops on the bridge to ask how it's going, and Cisco coolly dismisses her. Later, it's Cisco on the call with Lisa, and he admits he wanted Cassidy off the bridge. Lisa gets it. 
Mixing personal and professional lives is something most people can't do. And another piece of advice. In her estimation, it sounds like everyone on The Defiant could use some R&R. Checking in with Quark. He's in a cargo bay showing Jake the Denovan crystals he was supposed to sell to his buyer. Only now, it's too risky. Odo will be around Saturday night and would love to catch Quark in the act. To Quark, it's hardly fair, seeing as how he's the one who was a pal to Odo and encouraged him to pursue Kira. And now, all he wants is a little profit, and he can't even get that. As Jake and Quark leave the room, one of the storage containers morphs. It's Odo, and he's heard the whole thing. So here it is, Saturday night, and Quark is feeling like a failure, expecting his buyer to show up, getting caught by Odo, and ending up in prison. But to Quark's surprise, in walks Odo and Kira in full 1920s formal wear. Odo says Kira convinced him that this was the night to celebrate their anniversary, and he'd appreciate the use of the hollow suite now if he could. A surprise Quark hands over the data rod, and out of earshot, Kira asks Odo if he's really sure he wants to do this. Odo says Quark can get away with this one, just this once. Arriving at the Class L planet, the Defiant crew assesses the situation. Lisa Cusack is unconscious from hypoxia and needs to get back to their sickbay in no more than 45 minutes. But if the Defiant gets any closer to the Metreon radiation field surrounding the planet, they'll be pulled down the same way that destroyed the Olympia. Act 5. Sisko, O'Brien, and Bashir take a shuttle, a safer but still dangerous option, to try to find Lisa. They locate the wreck of the Olympia and the cave where the communications were coming from. No life sign readings, though. They continue to search and find a corpse. They're too late. Exactly how late? More than three years. The body is Lisa's all right, but somehow the communications passing through the Mitreon field were time distorted, hers reaching the future, the defiance reaching the past. The only thing they can do now is give this Starfleet officer a burial, but a proper one, among friends. On board DS9, the senior staff have assembled for a wake, to mourn the loss, but also celebrate the life of Lisa Cusack. Privately, Sisko tells Cassidy he'd like to talk to her later about his behavior. To the assembled crowd, Dr. Bashir respectfully and humorously takes the opportunity to celebrate someone he barely knew and how it reminds him that he cares for his friends here. Then it's Chief O'Brien, who tells everyone that he feels they've grown apart, but their friendship is important, and one day someone else in this circle will be gone, and they'll need to mourn together. The End. Always wonderful to hear the sound of your voice, John, but let's jump right into the sound of her voice, and let's let's take a look at, at what stuck out to us in our observations. Look, the first thing that sticks out to me, I can sum it up in two words. Poor Morn. I know. <laughs> well, I, like, this is probably one of my favorite running gags on DS9, and it's the kind of brilliant thing that they did on this show that they didn't do on the other shows up to this point. Just to have a guy there who's a regular who it, brilliantly, they don't allow him to say anything, but he is the center of the action there. I love stuff like that. Yeah. His actions speak volumes. Yes. Speak being the operative, not operative yes, word. Yes, yes. I thought they did a really good job, you know, uh, after Quartz cutting to the Defiant and just kind of showing like the doldrums 
of daily service life. Yes. I think Cassidy was probably trying, she's probably waltzed into something that she's not used to. Probably being the captain of a freighter ship is a little bit more exciting, but all of a sudden it's paperwork, 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 Mm -hmm. and duty, 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 and fight, you know, recover, fight, recover, and being paranoid about the whole thing. It just seemed very real. Yeah, Yeah, everything about it felt real. And a, a good, you know, look at the character's actual emotional lives, which we'll, we'll for sure talk about. One thing that is not quite real, uh, but, but it is the classic Star Trek setup that you have to have it. Uh, if we didn't have it, we'd feel like it was missing. Uh, are there any other ships nearby? No. How close are we? Six days and yet, mm. and yet it's crazy if you need to hop over to Earth or Cardassia Prime or anywhere else. Hey, boom, you're there. And plenty of ships around. I wonder if we're to assume that because of the war, like their their available ships are slowly uh, being diminished over time. Yeah. No, it, we, we definitely can assume that. And it is kind of weird, though, that the Olympia has been gone for, well, according to their timeline, eight years and now they're six days away from from at least where the defiance position is. So it's like we made it, uh, you know, seven years, 11 months and three weeks, <laughs> but we're mm-hmm. still not close enough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know I'm more of an old fashioned Trekkie than, say, more of a modern Trekkie, but I love it when I love the scene when here. uh Cisco says your heroes are on the way. Uh, I just like yes, that. Yes, yeah. Right. It, it was. It, it was. Yeah. It was said with the right tone. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and look, I'm glad to see the return of our old friend, good old Triax Compound. You can't keep a good pharmaceutical down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Triax Compound. Yeah. The tried and true method of uh, saving people and hangover cure. Yes. And a hangover cure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So. Is it me or is the chief always fixing something even though maybe things don't need to be fixed? Maybe he's – the way I see it, and especially after the last couple of episodes, maybe the chief uses fixing things to kind of just keep him distracted from life. I mean we all do that, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. That whole yeah. saying, I'm just going to focus on my work. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the chief was doing yep. here. I'm, I'm terrible about that and uh, chief, I feel you. By the way, something that wasn't working apparently on the Defiant – no computers to look up the history of the Olympia, or did nobody mention Stardate <laughs> at all in any of this? Just just throwing that mm. out there might be a thing that you do. In fact, maybe we should just all do that in our daily lives. You get on the phone with somebody, make sure they confirm the date, uh, because you never know. They could be calling from the past, or you could be calling from the future. So just double check. <laughs> just double check. <laughs> Now, I, I don't I, – look, we can get into the other personal bits in this. I don't entirely know what to make of Cassidy's conversation with Chief O'Brien asking if he or others were uncomfortable with a civilian on board. Like, I get it. The chief, he's he's friendly. He's a good guy. He is a non-com, so maybe he's got you know one foot in one world, one foot in the other. But um, it just it just seems a little – you know what? We'll talk about – other things that I felt were odd about Cassidy's presence there. But that was just one moment that I was relieved that they heard from Lisa <laughs> as soon as mm-hmm. they got into it. Yeah, awkward conversation breaker right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, when Lisa chimed in. Yeah. But also, I mean, I love seeing Cassidy Yates again. I think that uh, mm-hmm. maybe her dialogue was written in a way where it maybe would have felt natural if we saw more of her, but we haven't seen her since I don't know how long. It's been a long, long. time, yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. And this is somebody who, remember, Captain Sisko let go off and face consequences for her actions. So, (laughs) you know, yeah, 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 a little tricky. So what what made you more comfortable then, Mm -hmm. the scene between her and O'Brien or the scene when Captain Cusack started asking Sisko about Cassidy because, wow. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if we have the time to unpack that much information about what's going on in his head that was yeah i I mean honestly so one thing i did you know i did start to look around the room a little bit because of my discomfort and uh, admiring that abstract industrial art on the wall but i loved his business at the desk there like like flipping around the pads and all Mm -hmm. that it just it was like yeah i feel your discomfort but it, it, it felt true it felt really true and she probably heard like him grab those extra pads and start shuffling them around <laughs> like, oh, this guy's got issues. Right, oh. right. So when when Quark started to to bring Jake along and have him tag along as his trade as a businessman, I mean, he even had him kind of be his lookout for a second mm-hmm. when Odo was coming out of the hollow suite. Um, I just felt like their relationship there was just a little odd. Like I love seeing Sirach, you know, on camera, yeah. but it just felt like they needed to get them in a scene together because of contractual reasons. Yeah, like we really haven't had them in scenes a lot together. This felt a little weird because here's Quark saying, uh, you can't put any details in your book or in front of Captain Sisko. It's like, well, then what good are these details of what you're doing? <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, but I do feel like at least from Quark's point of view, there might have been some genuine you know, friendly affection there for Jake. It's like, oh, okay, he's the the commander's son, and he's a good guy, and he's not in Starfleet. But it's also a level of protection, you know? Like, there's a usefulness that comes along with having Jake by your side. So, Well, Jake's the naive. You know, he's the naive character. So Quark's like, you know, I'll tell you something, but I'm not really going to tell you something. But you can think about whatever you need to think about to make this whatever. Right, right. Right. Now, you're talking about stuff that needs to get unpacked, and boy, there is a lot. Uh, But I loved (laughs) Dr. Bashir and his conversation with Lisa saying, I graduated second in my class. And she says, and we're especially proud of that, aren't we? Lisa, it's a long story, okay? <laughs> I hope you have yep. time. Yeah. yeah the, the thing with the ganglionic this and the ganglionic that mm-hmm. and the whole thing with that, it didn't really matter because I just – I still think that he fudged his test to make sure that he could cover for his genetic manipulation. Mm-hmm. I, I still think that's the mm-hmm. thing. Uh, okay, so let's talk about characters that are still consistent yeah. because we're still dealing with characters in this episode that have – Say like Worf, when Worf says, you know, he he objected to them draining the phasers to use them for power to go save this captain when there's a war on. That's Worf's job. Yeah. That's what Worf does. Yeah. And I'm glad he's consistent. And he probably didn't have Lisa get into his head. Mm -hmm. Bingo. During any conversations. Bingo. Yeah. I think she would have given up if she'd been put on the comm line with Worf. So, mm. yeah, just uh, don't bother. Just uh, go go back to DS9. Have fun, guys. See ya. I do want to say that when they got there, the uh, the cave sets looked great with all that rain. Yeah. You know? Uh, oh, and I didn't mention it in trivia, but some of that crashed uh, Olympia was pieces of the uh, burnt-up Enterprise from Star Trek Three. That's a neat little thing. That's good trivia. Mm-hmm. Not bad, yeah. right? So if there's an energy barrier surrounding this Class L planet that created this temporal anomaly, is there anything that would have affected Sisko, Bashir, and O'Brien in the shuttlecraft as they went through that barrier 
in any way, or did it just affect energy, or were they protected by plot it's armor? It's so funny. I almost wrote down the exact same question, and I'm so glad that you did, because, yeah, I kept thinking they're going to show up three years older, or show up three years younger, or who knows. But, yeah, they, they definitely had some thick plot armor on in that. I do have to say I'm surprised that Worf had never heard of an Irish wake because that seems like exactly the kind of thing that he would have heard of and would have attended. Uh, but I'm glad that Dax let him know, like, it, it's it, it's kind of Klingon, <laughs> you know? Totally. It kind of is. So, um, yeah. But I do have to say that uh, they're at a wake, and it was a weird time for Cisco to pull the old, like, it isn't you, it's me line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just uh, let's save that for another scene, okay? Um, Cassidy, we have to have a talk. Yeah. Ooh, oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. Nice thing, Dax, finally, in the episode. Yes. Just for that little little turn for yeah. her informing Worf, what a wake is all about. Yeah. The other thing that kind of just, I don't know, made me go, huh, the extras that were in the background in that scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was kind of like a, a very personal thing for all of involved, you know, everyone involved when they found the captain and brought her back for her yep. wake. But then there were these like, weird extras kind of just there. I'm like, mm, okay, I guess they have to fill the yeah, scene. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I always appreciate seeing a photon torpedo tube Ugh. with the Federation flag draped Ugh. over it. I mean, that that goes all the way back to Star Trek, the Wrath of Khan. And every time they do it, just gives me the feels. 100%. Right. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of feels, well done, writers, for using the very last line to reference the title of this episode. There, You know, there are so few times you can get away with that as a writer where you drop in the title of your movie or your episode into the show. This, 100% correct. Well done. Everyone within the sound of my voice. We have got to find these people a counselor. Could we promote Chester? We'll get right back to the sound of her voice, but first, a word from our sponsor this week, ExpressVPN. Hey, you know what I don't do? Oh, first of all, because it's rude, but uh, second of all, because I don't want people to hear my every thought and utterance. I don't pick up my phone and take a loud speakerphone call in a public place like a like a train or a bus or a restaurant where everyone can hear everything that I say. Like I said, it's rude. Don't be that person. You don't want to be that person. But you know what's like doing that? Uh, using the internet without a VPN. And here's why. And here's why everybody should have a VPN, because ISPs, your internet service providers, wherever they are, Comcast, Verizon, Spectrum, whatever, they know every single website you visit. Yes, they do. You may think they don't. You might be using incognito mode, but uh, that doesn't make any difference. They have your information, and they can sell that information to ad companies, tech giants, anybody who can use your data to then target you. So I choose to use ExpressVPN. Well, like John said, if you don't want to hear the sound of her voice or the sound of your voice, then use ExpressVPN. Why? Because ExpressVPN creates a secure and encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that people can't peep on your online activity. No peepers allowed, right? So in to peep block, <laughs> you fire up that app and click one button. That's it. You're completely peep protected. It's been rated number one by CNET, by Wired, and The Verge. 
And it works on phones, it works on laptops, it works on your routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. Now, Norman and I both use ExpressVPN because we know that it is fast and secure. And those are the two most important aspects to using a VPN. So you can do the same thing that we do. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash mission log. And thank you to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. Okay, John, so let's jump right into our discussion for the sound of her voice. And one of the first things I wanted to talk about was this this element of dancing around, do we or do we not need a ship's counselor? That, that seems to be like a big theme, <laughs> especially with the way that Captain Lisa Cusack was able to actually be a counselor for three specific characters, Cisco, O'Brien, and Bashir. You know, I, that was... It was funny, especially to hear that conversation between Lisa and O'Brien, um, not because it was funny content, but, but it was peculiar. He says, I dislike the whole idea of a ship's counselor. And she says, sometimes all you need are good friends. And then I believe followed up somewhere in there, she says, you know, if you can't talk to your friends and you can't talk to your wife, then my question is, then why are hey you married? <laughs> but, yeah. oh, hey, watch out. Yeah, little little Keiko humor there. It's our mm-hmm. brand. But I, I love the idea that Lisa was this stand-in counselor. I, I love the, the structure of having her play that role in the show. But it really did get me to thinking, like, it actually proves the need for the counselor. That conversation absolutely shows you why you have to have that person. Now, that person may not specifically be called counselor. That person could be a well-placed, very intelligent, very insightful friend. It could be a family member. But there is actually a benefit to having somebody who isn't either directly related or intimately involved in your life being able to be that third party who can ask the good questions. And clearly, from our experience with everyone, and you have to wonder if Lisa talked to more people beyond Cisco Bashir and O'Brien, you, you know, it should have proved to them that they need this outlet. They need this way to discuss what's actually going on in their heads. It was interesting to me, looking at the trivia and looking at uh, Terry's book, that this episode started with the twist. Mm-hmm. It didn't start with the exploration into character. It started with the twist. And then what they found was, well, no, it's not going to be a love story. It's not going to be this. It's it's actually going to be this investigation into their lives. And that comes across front and center of just how important this human-to-human contact and connection really is. I think that this scene, that, that specific scene for, for Lisa and O'Brien, when they're talking about, you know, what is a ship's counselor? What are the, what are the merits of somebody with a degree? D- is it important or not? I think it is important to have some type of counselor mm-hmm. on there because let's go all the way back to Hard Time in season four, the episode where, where O'Brien, he couldn't, he couldn't uh, explain, he couldn't express he yeah. he was bottling up all of that angst and all of that anger and all of that despair to the point where he almost killed himself, you know, by at phaser point. How is it that he has all of these friends 
And like he said at the very end during the wake that he didn't realize how alone he was. How is it that he has all these friends, his family, but he can't express all of these these feelings and express and release all of this angst to them? I, that's something that I thought that's what friends were for. You know what? It's interesting to me that we took a lot of uh, criticism and, and honestly well-placed feedback about our take on Hard Time. And our reaction to that wasn't negative because, oh, he was driven to this point uh, that the, he suffered this horrible, you know, psychological torture. It was where were the stop gaps in the way that should have been there to mm-hmm. protect him? You know, where where were the outlets for him? And that's that's exactly where an episode like this almost becomes a bookend to that to to really uh, to to justify why there is a psychological component to uh, to their jobs and certainly structurally like we had on the enterprise with Deanna Troy that's the person you need here now fortunately we also now have a guy like Vic mm-hmm. who can somewhat fill that role but that's coming in at the tail end of season 6 right. here <laughs> you know so yeah uh, i i i've mentioned before on our show how important therapy is and how beneficial it can be whether you feel like you need it or not having that person who is trained who is thoughtful who is somewhat disconnected from your your daily life that can step in with good questions and a good sort of reshaping of direction and intent that's exactly what they got here and i, and I think it's it's lovely to see that but it's also out. interesting that they're so comfortable so quickly with this disembodied voice with somebody who they feel that there are there there are, there are no aspersions there's no judgment you know there are no there's no baggage you know mm-hmm. with with lisa to them lisa said to o'brien Sometimes all you need are good friends. So let's go back to hard times. Why is it that someone like Miles or even like someone like Cisco, Cisco can't go to Dax. I'm having problems with Cassidy. You've had seven lifetimes to figure out relationships. Why can't you help me with this? Why can't Miles go to his best friend? He he goes to the Battle of Britain hollow suites with him. He goes to the Alamo suite you know programs with him. They have beers and and stuff afterwards. They they game. Miles was going to go wake him up in the middle of the night to play Tongo when Keiko's gone. Those are friends, but mm-hmm. yeah, friends like the real friends that you need. They would go to the Earth's end. They would go to hell and back for you. They would take your call at any time, do anything for you. Do they exist in this story? Do they exist between these characters? We'd like to we'd like to right. think they do. It sounds like they do. But maybe they don't. Well, and that is kind of the heartbreaking thing at the end is Miles's realization. It, it just reflecting right back to that terrible place he was in in hard time, saying, we've grown apart. And that feeling that, yeah, they have each other's backs in this professional sense, but emotionally, do they? And I get it with Lisa. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but being with an actual counselor, an actual therapist. And you, you've never met that person before, but usually right from the beginning, at least in my experience, you can go in and just start and, and just share this this level of emotional, mental intimacy with somebody because they're not connected to you. 
But at, at the same time, yeah, nobody should know you quite like a friend. The, a, a close friend. Yeah. And we're talking like the friends that, you know, that, yeah, that yeah, you yeah. can count on one hand. You know, people that have been with you through thick and thin yeah. and you've done for them as they will do for you. I, I guess that that's kind of like why I'm a little bit puzzled that in the relationship that they've built throughout the course of these six years, that those connections aren't there at that depth. And that's kind of like what puzzles me. Yeah. But um, I also yeah. kind of wanted to, to bring up, uh, you call it the twist, but I think I'm calling it a different twist. It's the twist that at the end of this episode, the person that they've been talking to, this, disembo- that this disembodied voice that they've been talking to has been dead for three years. Do you, do you feel that that is something that sits well with you or <laughs> you, you know what? Let, let's honestly, I, I want to save that okay. for the wrap up because I have a thought about that. I, I, I mean, to me, the only useful part in the story about that is that it reinforces the idea that uh, in this case, for them, for this crew who have grown apart in ways, that it was easier to talk to a stranger than it was to mm-hmm. a friend. And now we're just extrapolating that even more. It, it's somebody who is a stranger, who we will never see in person, who will never meet in, in real life. And, you know, Twilight Zone twist of the week, they're dead. So, fine. I, I I do have some thoughts about that that are better for the next segment. I think the only useful thing there for me is just simply that it it helps to illustrate how much more willing they are open up, uh, the, willing to open up to a stranger than to each other. That's that's, that's true enough. It. And I think that the one yeah. thing though that also really works well in this episode that's worth discussing. There are relationships that we've talked about where friends can't talk to friends because they just, for some odd reason, they don't have the depth of that connection. I found that so incredibly flipped on its head when it came to Odo and Quark. They knew exactly how to almost anticipate each other's moves to the point where they have to respect each other's moves, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, that, that is a very cool part of this episode. And I, I do have, you know, just a, a little note about uh, Odo and Quark. I mean, first of all, I love the use because I, I don't think I've ever heard this specific phrase before, but Quark saying, no one involved in an extra legal activity <laughs> thinks of himself exactly. as nefarious. Not, not illegal, Exactly. Extra legal. Mm-hmm. I love it. Just uh, uh, chef's kiss to the writing there. It, but this is Quark spilling the the villain is the hero of his own storyline in his own unique way. And I love how Jake's ego stroke is just mm-hmm. what he needs. So we were talking about maybe it's a little weird that Quark is taking on Jake into this. But Jake's fulfilling that role of stroking Quark's ego. Like, you're you're the best. He's I'm an enabler. from the best. You're going to yeah. help me. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. But I, I did wonder a little bit in this Quark-Odo relationship, okay, I can see Quark as the first one to break, as the one who grudgingly maybe develops a respect for Odo. And is maybe yeah he's still going to skirt the edges of the law but he's he, he sees something in Odo that is likable and respectable not just the guy to be avoided uh because he can get away with something 
I wondered, though, about Odo breaking. Is it just purely because now Odo's in love and he's distracted? Or is there something else about Odo that has grown that he actually, I would say, betrays his principles a little bit? I don't think you know? he betrays his principles as much as he has. He's. I think he's developed to a point where, is it really that important for me to come down that hard? Is the law being broken that much? You know, is this something that, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to lose any sleep over what Quark does. And in this case, he did me a, pardon the pun, he did me a solid, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so nice. he did, and I'm going to nice. return the favor yeah. because at the end of the day, a couple of crystals sold to a Nausicaan makes Quark feel good. But what he did for me in return mm-hmm. was an actual true act of friendship. And I thought that he realized the difference between the two. But see, Odo would never do the same thing for anybody else. Somebody he doesn't know comes to him with a story. It's like, yeah, I did this illegal thing. Oh, but it was for all these other good intentions, and it was just me getting away with a thing. Uh, I don't think Odo would be nearly no, as lenient. Certainly, you know, season two Odo would true never enough, be as True lenient. enough, but he and Quark yeah, have gone through yeah. things, and those things create bonds, and those yeah. bonds create friendships, and those friendships create forgiveness. The best candidate for station counselor, Morn. Tell him anything, he'll never talk. So we've come to the end uh, of listening to both of our voices for all of you and talking about the sound of her voice. Which is far sexier, I think, than the sound of maybe my voice or your voice. I don't know. That's for the audience to decide. But what we are going to talk about now at the end of the episode, as we always do, does the episode hold up? And what are the morals, meanings, and messages that we can mine from this episode? So, John, for you, let's talk about the first part. Does this episode hold up for you? So uh, I'm going to throw you for some twists and turns here, just as this episode does to the audience. Um, I do think that of the conversational scenes, we, we got a couple with Bashir, a couple with Cisco, and then a, a really uh, the important one with Miles. And I, I think the best of those conversations clearly is with Lisa and Miles. It is a great little peek into the inner lives of our cast. Overall, I think we've gotten some decent peeks at those characters along the way anyway, but that one just felt very, it felt very honest, even though I think we can legitimately question their questioning of the ship's counselor because they are doing this for each other. It's like, no, no, guys, really, you are proving here the worth of a ship's counselor and how badly some of you need it. So, um, yeah, I, I want the best for Miles. He's good people. Um, I will say this uh, against this episode. I do not love the use of Cassidy Yates here. Agreed. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I get it. And I think that there is some genuine realism to be explored about the mix of one's professional and personal life. I totally understand that. And I think Penny Johnson is great. But something about this rubbed me the wrong way. And it's not the actors. It's not the fact that they are sort of introducing this strife. Uh, It's more that it felt 
a little like the Miles and Keiko relationship where we just have someone around every now and then and then feel the need to create this personal drama. And I think Cassidy is way better than that. We know her better than that. The relationship with Cisco is very different. So to only have her here for this short time and just make it awkward and uncomfortable, that, yeah, I, I might have felt better about it if maybe we had had her along for, say, three or four episodes leading up to this where we could actually see that build. Mm -hmm. But it, it felt manufactured. Right. Um, and I will say this, because we, we watched these episodes several times, and the first time I watched it, I was very unfair to this particular story. I was getting pulled into the contrivance of the conversations, and I felt it to be a little bit tedious because I knew that every time we'd come back, we'd be in the middle of another conversation, and we were just going to ping-pong like that through the episode. And then I knew that we were just waiting around for a twist. And I, then I was just thinking, okay, well, they're going to leave it as essentially like a ghost story. Here's a voice from the past, and it was time, and now we're done. And I was so wrong. I was so absolutely wrong. I, I didn't love that aspect of it. But then the ending was just handled so incredibly well. The wake scene was fantastic. You, you kind of, you know, every time we come across a story like this, where we lose somebody in Starfleet, you want it to matter. You want it to matter more when it's our own characters. And here they found the exact right balance where we got the emotional depth out of our own characters. And even though it was somebody else who passed away, we were the ones there to pick up that emotional loss. And it mm -hmm. just hit me right in the feels so hard. It hit all the right notes as a story. It was personal but it was sci-fi. It had the tension of drama, but it ended with something so powerfully human. And in the end, I could not help but love this episode. Um, mm -hmm. It made it better on the rewatch because I knew where we were going. Um, I think first time around, look, legitimately or not, that is just my reaction is to sort of kind of playing the home game. Where is this leading? Where are we going to go? What's the twist? Because we knew there was going to be a twist. And that was unfair. Uh, but man, where this landed for me, I, I thought it was brilliant. And it's the kind of emotional weight that I want to see happen when we have something in Star Trek that actually is of human value, emotional value like this. Uh, so Norman, yes, uh, man, for, for, uh, a podcast that has covered some really rocky episodes of late, <laughs> this one felt great because it was so cathartic. Uh, how about you? I like how you say that, you know, over subsequent viewings, this episode started to win you over a little bit because I felt the same way. And it's, it's, um, it's part of our, our responsibility when, when watch these episodes, because, uh, as Mission Log podcasters, we look at it a certain way. It's hard to disassociate yourself from that format when you're watching it. So I tried to turn all of that off. And when I watched it for the first time, the first time actually really won me over. For me, does this episode hold up? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. 
And it's because this is one of those few instances when I've looked at and reviewed a Deep Space Nine episode where the, the A and B plots actually work well together. They're well-balanced. They give each character in each segment the right amount of time and character development to breathe. You get to understand their motivations. They have great cadence with their conversations. They have great pacing. I never really felt like one side was overweighted and overshadowed Mm -hmm. the other. And the more I watched it, and this is the truth, the more I watched it, the more I didn't watch the actual episode in earnest, I was actually listening to it because I was so engaged with the Captain Cusack character, and I was actually becoming part of that story when I wasn't watching the characters, when I was just reacting to her voice and listening to her and becoming part of that conversation in that way, in her disembodied voice kind of way. I felt that it really connected me with the episode, and I felt that Yes, these character motivations, the way they talked to her, the way they exposed themselves to her, the way that they bared themselves to her, this complete stranger felt very earned, felt very honest, felt very organic. So that's what I loved about that particular A plot of the episode. But the B plot, just as strong with Quark and Odo and Kira and Jake. I felt that all of the beats in in those character moments were earned and helped develop the characters as well as what we've learned from the Captain Cusack story. So it's rare, because we talk about this all the time, John, where the A plot completely overshadows the B plot. Why do you even have that in there? Why did you spend more time talking about the A plot? That would make more sense. Yeah. But in this case, right. I thought that the beats were really well written. The pacing was very good. And I thought that it gave us the one thing that we wanted for so long in the the episodes following, uh, in the pale moonlight, we wanted to see the characters breathe. We wanted mm-hmm. to see the characters be real, right? Mm-hmm. So returning to the strength of character development in this episode and being emotionally invested in their plot threads is is why those are the reasons why I think this episode is highly recommendable because you are invested in their emotional consequences, yeah. That's what good writing does, and that's what makes you pay attention to stand up, sit up, however you're watching it, and pay attention to why these characters are saying and doing what they are saying and doing in this particular narrative. And I think that was very smart on the writer's part. Only scene missing was the conversation between Cisco and Captain Cusack when he says, you know, the war has been tough and I've done things that I'm not proud of. And she says, well, it, look, at least he didn't lie to anybody to get him into the war. And then cut, you know, go to commercial. That would be, oh. that's the only bit missing. Yeah. <laughs> or he grabbed like a stack of pads. He's like, there's a lot of just clattering smashing, on your desk. <laughs> smashing I, I, them repeatedly on his desk. <laughs> I, I just have so much work to do. <laughs> so I, I think what's lovely about this episode is that it, it dramatically it is great um it, it is it, it's enjoyable it feels like part of this extended ds9 universe of characters that we've gotten to know get getting to know their emotional lives and when it comes to the morals meanings messages i feel like it, it's really about just sitting there and being with the emotion of the characters it isn't uh, as we used to say like a save the whales or you see timmy moment it's not about that but there are some great 
moments to recognize here. I do love it's a very short moment, and you brought it up in the uh, the observations. Worf say you know ha- having this question about well if we divert power from the phasers to shield integrity uh, or structural integrity uh, that that might be dangerous because we are in a war. I love that there is this very short debate about risk. It is solid gold. It is Star Trek. It is the Kobayashi Maru, and it is deeply human. It's like it's is our business. That's why we're business. aboard her. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah, and that, that's the thing. There is one person out there who is from Starfleet who needs help. We are putting ourselves at risk to go get them because that is what we do. And mm-hmm. I, it's just it, it's so nice to see a story about that in DS Nine because we haven't gotten a ton of that. You know, I I do think that Quark maybe needs to learn the lesson here of the purely altruistic gesture. <laughs> you know, uh, Odo does the altruistic thing. Quark has gotten a benefit, but did he actually learn? No, he he thinks I beat him. I finally <laughs> beat him. <laughs> uh, but that, that's you know that that's our Quark. Uh, I do still wonder. What do we make of Odo turning a blind eye? Is it compromising his values or is it just learning something human, learning something where where concepts of justice and mercy are fluid, uh, are maybe a little grayer here? But then it's kind of self-serving because this is what Odo needed. Odo needed this time with Kira because, as Quark has pointed out, he's been waiting his whole life for this relationship and now it's finally here so but even but even more so john is what quark said that romance is a distraction that's not just for quark's needs romance is distracting mm. odo from being odo yeah right? yeah yeah i for well for better or for worse maybe you know we we all feel like odo needed to grow and to have an emotional core and have an emotional life outside of just putting bad guys in the brig but is he maybe ignoring some of his responsibilities? I guess that remains to be seen in the coming episodes. I'm reminded, since we were talking about the Kobayashi Maru, I'm reminded of another very important line from that same movie, The Wrath of Khan. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? And that is just the emotional button on this episode. And I, I honestly don't know that if I've, I've felt the feels from Star Trek quite as much as I have from this episode, only going back to the end of Star Trek Two, which still gets me every single time. It's so refreshing in a TV show at all, but especially one like this, that's high concept sci-fi, to see our characters deal with some true emotional consequence, some emotional recourse after all that they've been through. And this was a very clever way to do it with somebody who we didn't really know, but was still able to get to the heart of our characters. So I thought that was this rumination and those last few lines between Bashir and O'Brien stated so eloquently about Lisa Cusack were beautiful and humanistic and all you need to really know about what's at the heart of this story. And I will just say one more thing here, because we we kind of, we're partially making light of the idea of uh, the ship's counselor, uh, not, you know, getting short shrift between Miles and Lisa. 
There was something in this episode about the fine art of conversation. This is the point at which our A and B stories converge. Someone is talking and someone is listening, but the person who is talking is the one who needs to hear. And they they were able to get this out of Cisco. They're able to get it out of Bashir. They're able to get it out of O'Brien. And you are also able to get that out of Odo. He was able to actually listen and assess a situation and understand emotionally what was important for him. It's funny how, yes, Lisa and Miles are opposed to the role of the ship's counselor, but they they just have a natural way of doing it, and that's fine, too. It shows the power of having friends you can really, truly talk to. Sometimes it's best if that friend isn't the one who is super close to you or part of the family, but the technique still works. The emotional need is there, and it still works. What about you, Norman? What have you found? Well, I think that both of us feel very strongly about this this whole aspect of a counselor that was that or that still is needed for these characters because the the moral or the meaning or the message that I that I fell on that landed for me in this episode was confession is good for the soul mm, why am i bringing yeah. this up you know they are confessing at least Cisco Bashir and O'Brien were confessing a lot of their their deepest uh, their, their deepest issues of the time and to somebody who they've never met to somebody who felt empathetic and understanding who listened was very important but it also gave us an insight to how well do we know these characters how well do people know us how well do our friends know us I think that we keep friends even close friends at a distance because we only let them know what we want them to know it gives them a, a certain sense of sympathy, but only in, in, a, in a reasonable way where they understand who we are because that's all we've let them understand, this certain percentage of who we are. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. really being honest. That's not really being, you know, uh, that's not really giving everybody the, the most access to who we are emotionally. I think you said this, John, uh, earlier before, when you go see an actual therapist, you bear everything to that therapist, somebody mm. you've never met. It's almost kind of like yelling into the ocean because it feels it feels some somewhat um, natural to unburden yourself to something or somebody that has absolutely zero knowledge of who you are and what you've been through because mm. they have no judgment, they have no baggage to to make any other assumptions on in order to give you that advice. So... Let's take a look at the chief in his confessional. I say confessional because that's what he was doing. Yeah. So in Time's Orphan, he wanted to leave Starfleet. He was telling Keiko that, but she didn't really understand. Do you think he would have told Bashir that? Do you think he would have told anyone else that on the station, Bashir being his closest friend? Hmm. You know, let's take, yeah. let's take Cisco's revelation with, Ke- with uh, Cassidy in this episode something that he's never mentioned to anybody, including Dax, his closest friend. Bashir. You know, there's really no one that he can talk to. And by his own admittance at the end of this episode, he knows that he's closed people off using work, you know, in, in that particular way to say, I've been invested in my work, so I don't really understand or really connect with people. Ever since that he, that he admitted that he was genetically altered, everyone had a different opinion of him, except for Miles. So why doesn't he talk to Miles? I guess that my point is 
you have to be able to confess what you need to to your friends in order for you to be able to release whatever burdens you to mm-hmm. the people that should be able to shoulder that burden. And I think that at least with uh, where Captain uh, Cusack was concerned, it gave us such a better understanding of all of these characters because it gave us insight on these characters that we've never seen before. Now, even though it comes to the contrivance and a huge ask of us as the audience to be able to believe that they would just spill their deepest and darkest secrets to somebody who they've never met, yeah, sure, that's a huge ask. But at mm-hmm. the same time, though, it also humanizes a character that we've never seen. And it gave us agency and emotional attachment to this character. So when they actually did find Captain Cusack, we were emotionally invested in her fate. And I think that wraps up so beautifully at the end because we are lamenting and celebrating and, and you know, trying to come to terms with the hurt of a character that we've only been invested in in less than 48 minutes. Yeah. And we've only seen on screen in 30 seconds. Yeah. But we believe that that character is important. Why? Because she made our characters feel important to us again. Right? They became heroes. Why? Because they did the one thing that we haven't seen them do in a long time. They became these real, human, caring Starfleet officers who wanted to do the right thing to a person who did right by them. It's very simple. The algebra is very basic. Give us characters who are heroes. Give them the ability to be those heroes. And in the end, give us those characters the resolution that we want so that we feel that our emotional investment in our heroes is justified again. That's why this episode is so good, because it makes us believe that they're doing right by us as well as doing right by each other. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Tears of the Prophets. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Help Wanted, Starfleet Needs Counselors, Will Pay in Chocolate, Inquire Within. End Transmission. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.